Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll-Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Dr. Molly Colvin and I have known each other for over 25 years since our first year at Wellesley College. That was long before she was Dr. Colvin, a clinical psychologist with a PhD in neuroscience. And now with all of those degrees in hand and much more wisdom through life's experience, she works as both the director of Mass General's Learning and Emotional Assessment Program and as an assistant professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. Molly also writes eye-opening columns for WBUR Public Radio in Boston about the neurological reactions to the pandemic, including brain fog and pandemic anxiety, which we will link to in the show notes because they helped me get through the pandemic. I know they will help others gain perspective. As someone who works with tweens and teens in my puberty workshops and sports classes and is raising for tweens and teens, Molly's pieces about pandemic anxiety, about brain fog, made me wonder if adults are feeling all of these things, what are tweens and teens feeling? If their entire neurological systems are completely under construction and hormones are flooding their bodies at exponentially higher rates, what is it like for them? Is it bigger? Is it harder? Is it more complicated? 
So it is a complete honor and a total pleasure to have my old friend and Cara's new friend, Dr. Molly Colvin here to talk to us about tween and teen brains and all of the wonderful and complex things they do and how we can better love and support them. Molly, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here for your Puberty Podcast. Molly, I'm going to start with a question, but first I'm going to make one word edit to Vanessa's introduction. It's a word edit that I am sharing with everyone who's listening because it's my favorite word edit. You are not her old friend. You are her long friend. (laughs) Have we gotten that old that now we say a longstanding friend and not an old friend? Because, you know, you and I are sitting in a studio together, but Molly's on Zoom and I can see her. And I'm just telling you, Molly is not your old friend. She is your long friend. And very not that if she was your old friend, I would be thrilled to have her too. Yes. But Molly looks the same as she did 25 years ago. I will say that. I, so I'm, she, I'm guessing that is correct. Yes. 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 It's actually very true. Yes. Um, Molly, it's so wonderful to meet you. You know, Vanessa, for as long as I've known Vanessa, has raved about you and your fund of knowledge. And so I would love to start by having you give a just a brief overview of what the tween and teen brain are doing right now in the years of rapid growth. And, you know, I, I love that I get to ask you this question uh, because it's your turn. But if you can just hit on a little bit about what's great about it and maybe a little bit about what's tough for parents as well, that'd be great. Well, thank you very much for that warm introduction. This is a real pleasure and and it'll be fun to be here with both of you. Adolescent brains are under construction and it's a marvelous time in development because so much changes in such a very short period of time. We recognize that throughout childhood, um, the brain rapidly expands often in terms of the gray matter or the cities and the towns that learn different skills. But during adolescence is really when those cities and towns start to become wired together. I like to say that the roads that connect them, um, which we call white matter pathways, begin to form and become not just country paths, but super highways. And it's during that period of rapid connectivity that the experiences that teens have can play a profound role in terms of the way that the brain is wired and operates throughout their adult years. Molly, will you give a quickie lesson? Cara and I have a separate episode about myelination. See, I got, I actually got good. Did I do it right? She's really good at pronouncing multisyllabic medical (laughs) terms. Just (laughs) asked me to say otolaryngology. Yeah, I know. That was me showing off. Um, But can you just, because we we do have an episode, a separate episode on this, but because we have an expert with us at the table, can you just talk a little bit about how those country roads become highways in that journey of going from a kid to an adult in the brain? Yeah. So the brain develops really from the inside out and also from the back to the front. And so as it goes from the inside out, you wind up with these layers of cells that we, I was referring to as the gray matter, 
layers. And that's the cortex. That's sort of those cities and towns that I was talking about. And then the pathways that connect them are the axons. They're really the connections between different neurons. So the neurons will have sort of a place where they're firing, and then they'll shoot that electrical pathway down the axon to another neuron. And those axons act a little more like country roads with children because they propagate the electrical signal from one neuron to the next, but they haven't really learned how to do it efficiently or really well. And the more neurons fire, the more efficient they become. And one of the things that makes them more efficient is this myelin sheath or this sort of fatty sheath that coats the axons. And it acts a little bit like the coating on an electrical wire where it's an insulator so that the electrical signal from one neuron to the other moves faster. That process of myelination is one of the major changes that happens in adolescence as kids grow and go through puberty. And we know that the maturation patterns of the white matter pathways comes in later than some of those maturation patterns of the cortex, which are being laid down earlier in development. Okay. So given that I'm a general pediatrician and not a neuroscientist, I need you to help me check something that I say all the time. I've been speaking on this for many years and I hope I'm getting it right. So can you give the linguistic thumbs up, please, if this is a fair way of describing this? Because of that inside to out development and the bottom to top development, by the time a child hits middle school-ish age, the part of their brain that fires the most quickly, sending and receiving signals most efficiently, is the emotional center limbic system. And the part that has a decade or maybe two before it comes online sending and receiving signals really, really quickly is the part all the way out at the tippy top, which is the prefrontal cortex. And it's that imbalance between the emotional part of the brain being able to get signals fast and send them out just as fast, but the really smart, thoughtful, long-term thinking part of the brain not being able to do that that accounts for basically every bad decision that every tween and teen and 20-something makes. Is that, That's did, did I get it? Okay. <laughs> right. Thank goodness, because I've, I would have miseducated many, many people. Over Millions time. of people. <laughs> um, okay. So now that we have that, can we go back to Cara's question, which is, what are the hard things about the brain development and what are the great things, both for the kids themselves and for the adults who are caring for them? I think one of the best things about the way that the brain develops is that it takes a long time and it's very responsive to environmental input. What it means is that things aren't hardwired. You're not born with a brain that is static and can't learn. In fact, during childhood and adolescence, that's often when we learn best. Um, So that's one of the amazing things about the way that our brains develop. But the hardest thing about the way that our brain develops is that it does it in this uneven way. It does some things develop faster than others. And it takes a long time for those different systems to hook in and talk to each other efficiently and to do it consistently. 
So one of the things that I often say about teenagers in particular is that they are consistently inconsistent. So there are some days where you will literally see the neurons kind of firing and you're like, oh, they've got it. And then the next day, under very similar circumstances, they don't. And that can be very frustrating, I think, for parents. And what I like to say is that that is just a fact of their brains being under construction. That's what happens. So counseling patients, maybe, with the inconsistency, as hard as that can be for adults to be patient with it, I will acknowledge my own impatience with the inconsistency. I'm like, what? What do you mean? Like you could handle this yesterday. Why can't you handle it today? I know you think your job is done like in a certain little corner. Oh, you you one day you high five yourself. They're good and then the next day they're back. Yeah. Square. That one, old square that, zero. That old one is back. Yes. Is there any way to encourage consistency or speed up consistency? Is there anything in kind of practice or diet or routine that kind of can encourage consistency to come sooner or stronger than, or does it just like, are we all just kind of at the beck and call of neurological development? I would say a little bit of both. I mean, this is where environment um, can play a, a role in sort of fostering the development of those systems, because remember that the neurons that fire together, wire together. So if you do a routine, say the same way every day, you're teaching those neurons to fire together in a certain pattern. And so it's much more likely that some of those things will become automatic or ingrained into your behavior. But at the same time, one of the skills that is really kind of a role of the prefrontal cortex is also recognizing that you can apply new skills to different contexts. And I think this is also something that teens sometimes struggle with. So you may teach them a skill and they may learn it under certain circumstances. And then you as an adult may see that it applies in another set of situations, but the teen doesn't make that connection because they haven't learned to sort of see the similarity between the context and recognize oh yeah, this is the same kind of situation that we did yesterday and I can use that same tool that I've already learned how to do. So it's a both and where you have to kind of teach them from the bottom up through routine and developing automaticity, but also teach them from the top down by making some things explicit and by saying, hey, you know what? This is a lot like yesterday when you did this and you're going to do the same thing today. So it does, because one of the things you know, the struggle as a parent always, but particularly the struggle with kids who are individuating and like gaining their independence is when do you point stuff out and when do you allow them to learn it themselves? And so I was going to ask you, is it helpful for us as adults to say, hey, do you notice how you handled this situation with your teacher? Well, actually, the situation with your coach, you can actually use the same technique. Or is it better? Is it more powerful? Is it more useful for them to come to that realization themselves? I think there's always this fine balance in parenting about being your child's guide and also sort of stepping back and letting them figure things out on their own. One of the things that we know about learning is that when you do it yourself, your brain absorbs that lesson and absorbs that skill 
a lot faster than if somebody is just passively talking to you. Um, I think this even came up this year when we were having all the conversations about remote school. What's missing sometimes in the Zoom setting is that interactive piece that a lot of kids really need. And that often comes from doing it yourself. I think it's also important to recognize, though, that when your teen is doing something on their own, they are much more likely to be motivated by different influences and different factors than they would be if they're standing next to you and you're guiding them. And some of the big things that they're motivated by are social connections and by emotions. And when they're standing next to you and you're acting like their prefrontal cortex and helping them make good decisions, those things, those social factors and emotional factors are dampened down. And so then you see their prefrontal cortex practice and do it. But if they're worried about being embarrassed in front of their teammates when they're talking about their coach or they're worried about, you know, what the coach is going to think when they come to put them on the game roster you might see them make a very different decision because they're going to be extra sensitive to the cues around social belonging and and emotions. That was amazing. But I am still stuck at Vanessa's question because I'm wondering also from a neuroscience perspective, how you get your kids to listen to your advice in the first place, (laughs) which I'm wondering (laughs) if that's hardwired somewhere, Molly. And could you please share with us the secret sauce there? (laughs) I wish I knew because in my own house, things would be a lot. <laughs> makes me feel so much better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so getting at that issue of A, being ignored, selectively ignored, it often feels like. B, they can hear, but they can't listen. Right. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to make that t-shirt. <laughs> um, B, the importance of social connection. And what was the other thing you said, Molly, was the was the thing that they're seeking out social connection the, and emotion with a higher emotional reactivity um, than, than we do. So they're super sensitive to things that are going to feel like a rush or especially things that are going to feel rewarding. It's the um, limbic system. Limbic system. It's that fabulous that, limbic system. Sort of unchecked without the prefrontal cortex, um, sort of helping it to be used for good and not necessarily for dangerous behavior. It's so interesting. I've read a few studies that now I'm not exactly sure how the data was collected. I'm trying to imagine kids in PET scanners while these things are happening to them, but and PET scanners, Vanessa, you know, sort of sophisticated medical. Um, imaging equipment that looks at how cells consume sugar, glucose, and then they light up and they show sort of where metabolic activity is happening during a certain activity. And one of these sets of studies looks at the peer influence and literally the limbic system, the mid part of the brain lights up consumes more energy when friends are around. I have always struggled to imagine the clinical setting where that's being tested. Like, do you have a bunch of friends walk into the room or are you on a phone and are you on social media with your friends or how's it all working? But it literally lights up, which is amazing because it turns, tell me, Molly, if I've got this right, but it literally turns up the volume of that part of the brain. So Everything that's happening there and that whole emotional response is amplified, which has always been the reason I understood that 
a kid could sit at the dinner table with their parents and walk through all the right answers to all the tough questions of, are you ever going to drink and drive? And when you go to this party, are you going to be, you know, careful? And are you going to have sex? And you're going to do this. And they know all the right answers because their limbic system is turned down. And then they go to the party like an hour later, maybe, and their brain is metabolically totally different. And the part of the brain that does the answering at the party is totally different. Is that a fair way of looking at it? That's a very fair way of looking at it because once they're in the party, the reward of being with their friends turns up the responsiveness to their friends and turns down all of the prefrontal cortex around planning, reasoning, all of those kinds of things. So Molly, is it a zero-sum game? If some part of the brain is turned up, does that necessarily mean other parts of the brain have to be turned down? So if the limbic system is elevated, does that mean other aspects of the brain are kind of take a backseat? Not necessarily. Um, And in fact, if the systems are starting to wire together, you might actually start over the course of adolescence, you start to pull in some of those prefrontal connections um, because they've started to wire together more solidly. Um, But what it might mean is that it has to override. There's a lot more energy to override one of the systems that has already been sort of turned up, especially the limbic system. So do the conversations at the dinner table where you have a totally mature and constructive conversation about healthy decision-making, even though they may go and make different decisions with their friends at a party a couple of hours later, is that conversation still creating a neural connection between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex down the road? Yes. And that is why they are so critical because as annoying as you will be to your teen for having that conversation for the 10th time, somewhere in there, it will register. And the goal is that there's an automatic pattern response where they say, oh, this is drinking or this is alcohol or this is sex. And that all of those conversations that you've had with them will help provide a blueprint for how they know they should behave so that if they go off the blueprint that you've discussed, they're not going way into the woods. They're just going a little bit off the path and coming back in. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you are literally getting in your kid's head. Right. When you have the conversations in the moment, in the calm, at the dinner table. But the only difference is there are different ways to have that conversation at the dinner table, some of which will be more effective than other ways, right? So the conversation doesn't sound like, hey, Cara, can you not be an idiot tonight and get in your car and drive drunk and be a total jerk? Uh, What I'm going to say is having multiple conversations is more important than having one conversation. So it's In my opinion, it's better to have those conversations a bunch of different ways and even really screw up that conversation by having it the wrong way and then being able to revisit it and go, I had that conversation with you about drinking and driving the wrong way. And I want to try it again now because then you get to build that. It's it's what Molly said. It's like like walking through the snow, right? The first time you walk through fresh snow, there's no path. But if you keep treading the same path, eventually it gets nice and easy to walk through because you have created your own path. The other thing I want to ask you, Molly, is if this is all boiling down to myelination and the speed of message sending and signaling, then 
could it be a reasonable strategy to tell kids, hey, in the heat of the moment, when posed with an opportunity, shall we call it an opportunity, just take a moment, just give your brain a few seconds to let the impulse get everywhere so that the different parts of your brain can weigh the information differently. Because it's not like they don't have a prefrontal cortex. They have one. It's just not wired in the same way as the emotional epicenter of their brain, right? Yes. And I think it's a really good um, suggestion because one of the things that happens when their limbic system is getting all excited about whatever risky behavior has been proposed and they're with their friends, we know that it responds really quickly but it also come, starts to come down quickly too. So it might actually be helpful to even problem solve with your kids and say, you know, if you're ever in a sticky situation and you're not sure what to do, maybe then you take a minute and you go outside and you, you know, call me. Or if you don't want to call me because that's embarrassing, you can just go to the bathroom and think through um, with a trusted friend what you're going to do or how and see how they and check in with somebody who you who you trust about whether you're going to make a different decision. Because it may be that as the initial sort of reward response starts to taper off, it does give that prefrontal cortex a minute to kick in. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra, and it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft, and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their umbras. It's why we say that the umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your umbra, plus lots of other puberty info, at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk 
in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at bioptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. 
I'm Amanda Lippman. I run an organization called Run For Something. I wrote a book called Run For Something. And now I host this show also called Run For Something. My mission is simple. Find people who care about solving problems and help them run for office. Every Tuesday, I'll talk with amazing and incredible candidates and elected officials who are already making a difference. They're in local offices that might seem small and not so sexy, but are actually hugely important for your day-to-day life. Fixing our broken system will take all of us and people like you. Listen in every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever role play with kids where you kind of cause their limbic systems to peak and then role play with like, do you ever kind of, I don't know what the the term would be, but like actually recreate a situation? Because I role play with my kids, but we're like, it's calm. Things are fine. We're not in the moment. And I just wonder what role play would be like neurologically if you're doing it actually in a sort of a... Well, can we, as the adults in the situation, trigger the their youth brains to behave in that way? I, I don't know. Or elevate them, right? It's really hard for us um, to to have their reward system activate. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a good line. You know what? That is the bottom up. That is the parenting pearl. I'm just, you know, at the end of the show, oh my God. we always ask for a parenting pearl and there it is right now. Wait, know? Molly, say that again. Yeah, it's, it's really it's hard real, for an adult. So it's hard for an adult to get their limbic system to respond in the same way that their friends I believe you do. said it's really hard for an adult to get their limbic system to elevate. And that was an excellent way of describing exactly every kid's response to their parent, like cue the glass, uh, glassy eye look and the slack jaw, like, huh? (laughs) So let's go back to, let's, let's tie that to the question of being listened to, or at least being heard, right? Is that why we have trouble getting our kids to like hear us or listen to us because we don't sort of like alert their systems in the same way? Yes. And we, we're not, uh, you know, the, the, the neuroscience term for this is a salient stimuli, um, meaning something that comes up in your environment that actually captures your attention. And parents, unless you're sort of holding money or, or the car keys, are rarely a salient stimuli. That is a really good parenting tip. When you want your children to listen to you, hold money. <laughs> Put up a big wad of cash and wave it in their face. That is really really fascinating. So again, and I feel like this is going to come up over and over again in this conversation, they kind of can't help it. Like they're not entirely just being jerks when they're volatile. They're not just being jerks when they're not listening to us or hearing us. Their brains are kind of dictating that behavior to them. So not only is that true, they love to quote, once they learn that, they love to quote that fact. They love to look their parents in the eye and say, oh, it's not my fault. It's my brain. Right. They throw yeah. it back in our faces. Yes. However, having said that, are there ways to ingrain that into their brains? Like I know with little kids, like when we coach younger kids at Dynamo Girl and we have kids who whose attention we lose quicker than other kids, we'll give them like just a little pat on the shoulder before we give instruction so that we alert them that they're about to receive information. Or we'll even say to the group, hey, everybody, we're about to give instruction. So if everybody could tune in, right? So is there a version of that for teens living in our homes? 
asking for a friend. I'm laughing because I think we, we we all have a version of that that's not pretty, but could you give us the And I don't mean the, the F-bomb, right which version. is normally the version that I use in my house. There's the version, which is the, you know, the yelling and the swearing, which activates their limbic system and gets their attention. Yes, it Good. really does. That, then I'm doing it right. Yelling and swearing. Perfect. Um, are, oh. there, are there other versions besides yelling and swearing? That one's not a great choice. It, it breeds avoidance. Um, that that's a really negative stimulus, and they don't want you yelling and swearing at them. Because I honestly believe that for almost all kids, they really want to do well. Um, I don't believe in the using your my brains under construction as necessarily an excuse, right? But you you have to maybe give some grace and some empathy and understand that they really are trying often as best they can, sometimes more than others. I think that your suggestion about what you do with younger kids also works with older kids too, which is, and teens, which is to really make sure that you have their attention. Now, if you're competing with a device or screen, or, you know, they are thinking about something else that they're going to do later that night, or they're on the way out the door, that's not usually a time where you're going to be able to get their attention easily. You really have to almost pick your moments. Um, And I think this is part of parenting too, is recognizing when your child is sort of in a neutral state and also is in a place where they can hear you. I think one of the hardest things as kids get to adolescence is those windows start to kind of become fewer in between and, and shorter. And so you have to really be careful about when you're sort of picking your moment to do that. Um, But I think it's also one of the reasons why, especially this year, as we come out of this pandemic period, it's really important to have some built-in time for rest and reconnection. I think a lot of us have been together with our families, but not in a way that really has necessarily fostered that kind of connectivity. And it's often in those moments that you least expect it when you're driving to the grocery store or you're sort of sitting next to each other at the dinner table and things are quiet where you find the unexpected five minutes where you can actually have one of those conversations where they're, they're really paying attention to you. Can you add into that very elegant explanation, what hormones do to this whole stew? Yes, they do a lot. Um, So I think, you know, we talked about how the brain sort of develops from inside out and it goes from front to back. And one of the major things that happens during adolescence is the myelination and the development of the pathways that connect the different regions of the brain. But all of that is really in the midst of this whole sort of hormone fluctuation and storm that happens during puberty. And some regions of the brain are especially sensitive to the hormones that are released and during puberty and that fluctuate over the course of puberty. And some of those regions that are most sensitive to testosterone and to estrogen have to do with learning and memory and our response to stress. Um, And so in the midst of all of this um, that's happening with their brain, those hormones are actually playing really important roles in sort of signaling and and connecting different parts of the brain, especially those that are important in learning and memory and stress response. And do I have this right that it's the presence of the hormones, but it's also the surges, the the 
peaks and the valleys of the hormones because it's not like there's a nice drip drip of hormone that steadily increases over time as kids enter puberty, but really they get a wave of estrogen or they get a wave of testosterone and it's the chemical makeup of what is surrounding all those neurons in the brain is shifting quite dramatically, right? Depending upon if you're at a peak or if you're at a trough. Yes. And it shifts over the course of adolescence even. So, you know, what's happening in a 12 or 13 year old is very different than what's happening in a 17 and 18 year old. So it's over the long term and the short term that you're getting these kind of waves and fluctuations. And what's even more complicated about it, and this is where I think the pediatrician has a lot of expertise too, is that they all get there in their own time. So you can't necessarily expect that, you know, every 13-year-old is going to be the same. Um, And even for parents who have multiple children, you know, what happened in your oldest might be very different than what happens in your youngest because they all kind of get there in their same way, but in their own time. And that has a lot to do with puberty and when when those hormone fluctuations happen. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like the group that is best equipped to understand a little bit about how this feels are women who have recently had babies and can remember how it felt to experience those tremendous hormonal shifts, because that's really a lot of what is happening in the postpartum period is similar to what's happening in that um, pubescent brain, right? We also have a lot of women who are asking us to talk about, and I think, um, we have one guest who's going to come on and actually do this specifically, not from a scientific perspective, but as a as a writer on girls and as a mother of a girl about what it's like to have a hormonal daughter in your house and be either premenopausal or menopausal and parenting while both of you are going through these these roller coasters. Right. The short summary of that episode is it's very fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's a barrel of laughs. Um, Molly, I just want to ask, can you speak specifically, if possible, to the, the impact of estrogen in the brain versus the impact of testosterone in the brain? Is that a fair question to ask of you? Estrogen and testosterone do play very different roles in terms of brain development. And what we know is that it's one of the reasons why girls and boys may respond differently to stress and may also have differences in learning throughout adolescence. One of the regions that is, or one of the networks in the brain that's sort of most sensitive um, to the estrogen and testosterone it's called the HPA axis or the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is really responsible also for our response to long-term stress. Um, it releases some hormones in our brain that help the brain respond to chronic stress. And there's an, a complicated interaction between estrogen and testosterone and cortisol, which is what's sort of regulated by that HPA axis. And we don't fully have the mechanisms of that worked out. And I'm not a neuroendocrinologist, but broadly speaking, it means that also over the course of puberty um, and for for boys and girls may respond differently in terms of chronic stress um, and have different sensitivity to what's happening within their environment. That's great. So speaking of stress, we're 18 months into a pandemic each of us had children in different learning settings over the course of the past year and a half, some in school, some out of school, some hybrid. 
we had, you know, different learning environments, but we can say in general that all of our kids experienced higher levels of stress and worry, no matter what their specific situations were. What is the impact of stress in general? And what do you imagine or already know to be the impact of stress from the pandemic on tween and teen brains? So the data on this is still emerging, um, but it's concerning. And I think the overall pattern is that for most children and adolescents, um, there was some increase in stress over the course of the last 18 months. Some kids came sailing through it and showed very little change in terms of their everyday functioning, and others had a harder time. And what we are beginning to understand is that um, there were higher rates of anxiety and depression, especially in tweens and teens. And a lot of that had to do, I think, with social isolation. And so we understandably needed to implement social distancing to control the spread of the virus and to keep ourselves safe um, from the virus and getting an infection. But for teenagers who really are most interested in social connections and need those social connections in order to do their individuation and figure out who they are and identity development, um, this has been especially challenging. And I think that that has then um, increased some of these rates that we've been seeing about mental health concerns in teens, especially. Can you speak at all to who maybe has been most at risk within the population of tweens and teens? Obviously, it's not a competition, but a better way to say it, I guess, would be who are you most, what populations are you most concerned about? I have a lot of concern, I think, even about tweens and early adolescents um, who really are at a stage in their development where they shift pretty suddenly from sort of being family oriented to sort of thinking about their peers and having peer connections. But I like to say that they were the ones that got caught in between, you know, the stage where their parents were still mediating play dates and not yet having the skills where they can sort of do their own hangouts is what they call them. (laughs) So they are in a place where they haven't quite figured out how to do that connection without a parent because they were sort of in this pandemic mode. But I also think that, you know, in my role as a neuropsychologist, um, I specialize in seeing kids who have learning, emotional, and social concerns. And I think the kids who I've seen really also struggle during this period were kids who had learning concerns that made Zoom and remote school really hard. Some kids who had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or had a learning disorder who needed more support or were used to getting support in a classroom setting that couldn't be provided in the Zoom setting. And I think also kids who whose families may have already been under strain or stress and the pandemic just exacerbated those and made it worse um, and just added to their the overall stress level of the family structure, but also to the individual children. I think those are the kids who I've probably been most worried about because there was some existing vulnerability that as we've seen across all of the stories of the pandemic was just exacerbated and made worse during the last 18 months. Yeah, I I think that's right. And I think, you know, some of those exacerbating factors are better now, but many are unchanged. 
a lot of the inequities, a lot of the economic drivers, a lot of the issues that were related to the ability for families to get through their days seamlessly, to have parents who are employed, to be able to get a regular paycheck, to be able to put a roof over children's heads, to be able to put food on the plates. Those stressors have not gone away. And we have, I think we've done a very good job of identifying those stressors and opening our eyes to those stressors as a community, as as an entire society. I think we acknowledge those things in ways that the data has been calling them out for a long time, but we haven't talked about them. But it's, it is very worrisome heading back to school in the fall of 2021 and thinking about how we haven't solved many of those disparities. And in fact, the pandemic has made many of those disparities greater. And so now what? And, you know, I don't want to be a downer, but we're not done with the pandemic We will see waves of it come through. Kids under 12 are not vaccine eligible. There are all of these things that are sitting out there that create a whole different layer of stress for families. But I think there's a great commitment on the part of the American Academy of Pediatrics and pediatricians across the country, educators across the country, that one thing we cannot afford to do again is shut schools because, you know, everything that you've outlined, Molly, is at least addressable in the school setting. I don't think people recognized before this pandemic what exactly went on at school. Yes, it was education, but what all of the other intangibles have become very, very clear. I want to go back to something you said, Molly Carr, related to what you just said about school and kind of where kids are. And you talked about your concerns for kids who already had a vulnerability academically or socially or emotionally. And, you know, there's this this sort of phrase that's bouncing around our culture, which is kids are behind. Kids are behind. Kids are behind. I'm so worried my kid is behind, right? And we're we're sort of projecting onto them a, a failure on their part, which is in no way their fault. How do we reframe for in our own families and how do we reframe on the podcast and the communities in which we teach and work, what's a better phrase for that that is more empathic and more compassionate for the fact that these kids have no control over the ways in which they are quote unquote behind? I think it's a a really important question because I'm hearing a lot of that concern as well about learning loss and what do we do to catch kids up? And I think, you know, that does, as you just so well put, put the burden on children as opposed to sort of shifting the burden back to where it belongs, which is with adults and society. And having a plan about how we are going to recognize that, yes, in many school districts, kids didn't get as much instruction time and the curriculum may have been altered to sort of fit um, the remote learning setting or environment but that doesn't mean that because their scores are then lower on math or reading that they, A, can't learn. They still can. They still have the capability of doing it because their brains are wired to learn during childhood and adolescence. And two, that we can't, as a collective, come up with a plan about how we're going to sort of move forward from this. I think some of it is shifting expectations and sort of saying, you know, we don't necessarily need to expect that 
where we thought a child would be in September 2019 is where they're going to be in September 2021. Where they are in September 21 is where they are. And we have to kind of move from there. I think the other is really just even taking a breath and a moment to recognize that this has been stressful. And I think one of the things that is, you know, I'm spending time talking about even with kids these days is what their experience has been like for the last sort of 18 months. I think it's really important to ask them. And some kids, as I've said, have sort of sailed through it and sort of feel like, you know, this is no big stress and everything is okay. And others will honestly tell you, you know, this was really hard. And I think giving them a space to say that and to and to do that teaches a really important set of skills around resilience and how you talk about your emotions and how you go through difficult things. Because as much as we would like for our children to go through life without ever experiencing challenges, they will. And one of the things we can do as parents is give them language and skills and tools to face those and to come through those um, in a healthy way. And this is you know, for better or for worse, a wonderful opportunity to help them start those conversations. Yeah. And it's a silver lining that we all promised ourselves we would hold on to a year ago. And I think it's important to remind ourselves now that we have to hold on to it. That description that you gave of where they were in 2019 and where we thought they would be in 2021 versus where they are and taking the moment to just go, okay, this is the reality. That's actually in the circumstances are terrible and I don't wish them on anyone, but that's actually a healthy way of raising children to look at who your kids are in the moment. And instead of pre-programming what you think they should be or trying to strategize a path to get them to where you think they should be to, you know, sort of parent a little bit more in that vein. So there's this you know, there's this silver, this terrible silver lining, but a beautiful silver lining to all of this. As my grandma Flo used to say, Nessa, it is what it is. And she (laughs) had a really hard, really hard life. And that was her philosophy. And it got her through all sorts of tough stuff. It's like tough shit, kiddo. This is like, this is the way it's going to be. And you got to just accept it. And I think On some level, it's harder for us as adults, as you said, Cara, than it is for the kids to accept the reality. And it's our stress about what they are not or what the situation is not that feeds their stress rather than the other way around. I mean, it's so interesting. My daughter, who is going to be a senior in high school this year, has sort of reframed the duration of the pandemic in her mind and the way she has framed it as I had ninth grade in school. And if I don't get my senior year in school, I will be going from being a freshman in one school setting to a freshman in another school setting. She has, the time has expanded. It has, right? And I keep going, no, 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 where this was a limited, but the perspective is so different. And and so it's interesting because the is what it is, it has different boundaries. It has different feelings. It has different settings. And, you know, how a story of a an 18-month-old pandemic has become a four-year pandemic is sort of an interesting description right. of the teenage brain. Well, because every day when you were a teenager, every day felt... Yes. Like epic. 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 Like so much could happen in one day. Your entire 
social life could be changed for yes. better or worse. Your t- your perspective on your academic future could be changed for That's better right. or for worse. And so it makes sense right. to her that she feels like she could potentially be going as a freshman in high school to a freshman in college. Right. And she's not unreasonable in the sort of the teen brain has the incredible capacity to project. (laughs) They can project in all sorts of directions and onto all sorts of people. And it's a very interesting skill set in and of itself. I mean, I think one of the things that might be helpful in the context of this conversation is just to make a nod to the fact that having a brain that is not balanced, a brain that does not send signals evenly throughout, that is highly charged in the middle and sort of a little bit low energy in the periphery, that that's the same brain that can innovate incredibly well, that can discover, that can think, literally think outside the box in ways that none of our brains can. And that is the magic of this brain. And in the context of the pandemic, I think coming out of a very scary and very dark period, and let's hope we're coming out, right? We have a whole group of kids with brains that are wired to think about solutions and prevention strategies. And I think the world will be a different place in 10 or 15 years because these brains went through this pandemic Mm. now. Molly, speaking of missing out, you know, if we take Cara's daughter's perspective, which is like there's a whole host theoretically of experiences that she will have never had. Good ones, ones that we as parents would worry about on a Saturday night and everything in between. How do we make up for that? How do we supply those? How do we create opportunities? Or do we not? Do we just accept that those are missed things and assume that at some point in life? Like talk us through how we refill their adolescent experiences when they have missed one, two, three years in that in that time frame. Do, do we need to? For and their, right. For and do we brain. need to? And do yeah. we need to? I think the question I would ask too is, do we need to? I mean, I think in some ways, you know, what we are facing is probably, you know, an amplification of what our parents went through too, in that they were looking at us and realizing that the way that we were growing up and the, what we were being exposed to was different than the way that they had been brought up or what they had been exposed to. I think that this was so radical and unexpected and upsetting and traumatic for all of us that sort of shifts things differently. It makes it feel like it has a different weight and it, has a, it certainly has a different emotional valence to it. It feels different to us. But to some extent, this idea about you know, what we thought their experiences were going to be like, we almost need to let go of that a little bit and let it be what their experience has been. While also recognizing, you know, that some kids may need a little bit more guidance or a little bit more sort of molding or shaping if they sort of missed out on key critical periods. You know, I think this is probably, again, more relevant for kids who may have had some vulnerabilities sort of going in. So if you had a child who was very shy and sort of pulled back and they may not have actually really missed so much about kind of going out on Saturday night, but you might need to sort of help shape or give them some experiences that will turn their their focus towards their community again. So I think this is also about knowing your child. And it's the same struggle you've probably had 
since you started parenting, which is to recognize their strengths and also their their growth edges. And where their growth edges are, you want to push without pushing too far. That's a great term, growth edge. So it's it's not a strength and a weakness. It's a strength and a growth edge. Where they want me to grow a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's a really helpful. So, but are there certain skills, like forgetting the the kegger on a Saturday night or like the first date at the movies or the like hanging out at well, the mall? Are there for, certain skills that they for have? the most, I mean, I'm going to push back even on your question because this, this pandemic happened in 2020 and 2021 when they had social media and phones. And in fact, social media and phones are the lowest common denominator in this. Kids have that more in common than they have anything else in common. And so I would, I would push back a little and say that we have lumped onto them all of these missed moments that some were missed, don't get me wrong, prom, you know, but many were not because they were socially engaged. Many were socially engaging. Right, but there are another. skills that are developed amongst kids that are not developed 100%, online. And I'm not one to poo-poo, right. you know, Instagram and texting and social media and Snapchat, I've watched my kids be supported and uplifted, you know, playing video games with their friends all through the pandemic. 100%. I'm wondering that can't replace everything. And Molly, as you said, for these kids this age, it's about social connection and emotion and some of which they can get from virtual experiences, non-traditional experiences, whatever it is. But there must be skills and aspects of development they get from like being together in person, right? Which is why school, for sure, being in school was more valuable or we realized how important being in school was than being online. Can we assume like a physical therapist once said to me after my kid broke his collarbone and I said, does he need to do PT? And he said, his life is PT. You don't need to put him in PT. He will naturally redevelop the skills. Do we assume that that is also the case for our tweens and teens, that they will, life will ultimately imbue them with those skills that they have missed out on? I think so. I think for the the majority of teens, they will have the experiences and they will continue to develop. So, you know, we talked a lot about how the brain is very responsive to external experiences and from input from the environment. But the other thing that we know is, and and Cara can talk about this too, is about how the, the brain sort of follows a distinct pattern also in terms of the way skills evolve over time. So, you know, for example, most kids across cultures kind of have the same milestones at the same time in terms of learning to walk or learning to talk. And it will happen if you learn one skill, then the next skill sort of follows right behind it. The timelines may be different for some of our teens in terms of skills around independence and being able to be comfortable sort of navigating certain circumstances on their own. It may be a little later than we thought they were going to get there. But I, I like to think that the the kind of the patterning, especially around the prefrontal cortex development it, it, and the decision-making and planning and time estimation and context and all those skills we've been talking about in this conversation will still come online and still have an opportunity to be challenged and to grow. Um, but it may happen on a slightly different timeline than we expected it was going to happen. I think that's right. I think, you know, puberty, we always talk about the physical nature of puberty is, you know, 
you get what you get and you don't get upset. It comes whenever it wants. It, you know, comes early, comes late, it comes in whatever order. The brain is the opposite. The brain is very, I mean, you can, up until now, I would argue you could almost set a clock by it. We do in pediatric practice. We have these milestone charts. And if you don't meet the milestone by a certain age, there's an investigation into why. And they don't, those milestones do not end when you walk, right? They go all the way through the toddler and the preschool years. And so likewise, there are these milestones that we see in school age kids and in middle school kids and in high school kids, and they're reaching them too. I I wonder if the answer to your question, what are they missing, is more along the social feedback lines. Mm -hmm. They get some feedback on Zoom and through FaceTime and through social media, but um, that actual physical feedback. So I think a lot about body odor. And, you know, if you don't know you smell, you don't know you smell. And if you've been in your room for the past 18 months, no <laughs> one's giving you feedback, right? And so from a neurodevelopmental standpoint, that is a skill that you will have to learn to take that feedback and to figure out what to do with it and maybe to consider using a bar of soap in the shower, right? That skill is going to be delayed for kids who have not been out and about. But those are the types of, it's all, it's all the social feedback pieces that are sort of more a little more physical to me that are probably on a later course. But I agree with Molly. I think I think they will come for most kids. The ones I worry about are the ones who did not stay socially engaged. And there are there are a large group of children actually that they did not stay socially engaged for a number of reasons and and have sort of found themselves on the social sidelines for a while and getting back into that pool is so critical. And I think that's why schools have just simply said, we are reopening. They are they are going to get there. So Molly, I want to end with a question that connects to what Cara just said, which is many of us have children in our homes who by choice or by circumstance were kind of socially sidelined. And maybe they even kids chose not to even to go back to summer camp this summer and have stayed home, right? They're kids who have been kind of cocooned at home. So for those kids, putting our own expectations or experiences in our own adolescence aside, but just wanting for them what's healthy for them, how do we begin to help those kids go back into the world? What are a few things we can say to them? What are some ways we can help guide them back into places and circumstances where they do that get that kind of social and emotional input and, and access? Great question. I think this is where, you know, there it's going to be a combination of two things. You have to sort of know your child and sort of know what they're ready for um, and then also provide opportunities. I think the idea about, you know, going back into extracurricular activities and whatever form that is in terms of your child's interests is going to be really important this fall um, so that they are actually spending more time sort of outside of the house and, and hopefully they will be back in school in person and also getting some of that socialization there. But I think kind of expanding their social world is, is probably important right now, but you also have to know your child and know the pace at which they can do that. 
you know, I think a little bit about, you know, recovery from the pandemic, it's a little bit like, you know, when you're starting a new exercise routine and you're sort of, uh, you know, your muscles have say atrophied over the course of the period of time because you haven't used them. And now we're all sort of starting back up again. And I think people have, have rightfully sort of talked about how that can feel a little bit overwhelming and a little bit exhausting as we kind of come out of this cocoon. And so I think it is important to go slowly um, and to make time and space for even recovering and sort of find, if you find yourself a little breathless, then maybe you need to pull back a bit. But I also think it's important to sort of push kids a bit back into some of their social networks because that's where their identity development is going to happen. Um, they need that input and that stimulation. And, you know, we as parents then also need to be providing them with feedback um, about how they're doing and paying attention to their interactions and helping to guide them along the way. And since this is the Puberty Podcast, it's probably important for us to note that many of the kids as they're going to re-enter these social worlds, they are going to look a lot different than they looked before they left these social worlds. They are going to have gone through a stage in life and they are going to have changed and then many have not. And that's all normal too. So Molly, we like to end the podcast with a, a practical puberty pearl. Car calls it a pearl. I call it a tip. Um, I'm realizing that we both need to rebrand because those are both like slightly euphemistic. For, yeah, they're wrong. Yeah, they're so wrong. Once just, the name of a tampon, once it's wrong. Yeah, it's it's yeah. not great. Um, so we'll just <laughs> a practical puberty thought, which is no alliteration and is a super boring um, term, but we're going to use that today. What's like one takeaway someone listening to this can say? I just want one piece of advice that I can implement in my home with my kids easily and without turning everything upside down with respect to brain development and having kids in puberty in our, in our homes. I think it's knowing that their brains are under construction and that they will be consistently inconsistent and to keep at it because over time, your consistency will help them to also develop consistency. That's great. Cara, what about you? Well, I wish I had a teenage brain because I could remember it, but you wrote down what I said. Don't you remember? Because I said, that's Molly's pearl and we're going to use it at the end of the show. So it's, I wrote it down. Um, it's really hard for an adult to get a teen's limbic system to elevate. That is the pearl. That is brilliant, Molly. And the other pearl, and I'm going to quote you, Molly, is that we as adults are not salient stimuli, aka they don't want to listen to us because we are boring <laughs> we are <AF>. not interesting. <laughs> um, but not to take it personally and not to take it as a personal attack, but as a kind of normal neurological response to boring old people that we are. So, we really do sound like the Peanuts characters to them. <laughs> Um, Molly, it is so wonderful to have you here. I hope you will come back and visit us again. So much fun. So lucky to have you and your wisdom and your kindness. And you are just a model and empathy for our tweens and teens. I'm going to imitate your tone when my kids get home from camp. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to tap into your inner Molly. 
I'm going to tap into my inner Molly. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much. We loved having you. Thank you. I love being here. It's great to see you. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at the puberty podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.